we wanted to change the mindset of the coffee culture and just as the business culture. So what we did was like just make a high quality brand, including the space, and then a quality product. And you know, I think people respect that. Welcome to the Profitable Table, fed by Woolco Foods, the nation's first podcast devoted to the business and lifestyle of the hospitality industry. Now, here's your host, Woolco Foods CEO Stephen Toberoff. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of The Profitable Table, fed by Wilco Foods. I'm your host, Stephen Toberoff, and I've been really looking forward to this interview for the past several days, ever since I knew it was lined up. So I want to just jump right in here and introduce my guest, which is Michael Clark, who is the owner and founder of The Grind Coffee Shop here in Jersey City at 360 Communipa Avenue in Jersey City. Michael, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me today. Thank you, man. Thank you for having me. So, Michael, I've got so many questions for you, but before I jump in with them, can you tell us a little bit about your background and how you got involved with The Grind and creating that? I was the creative director for big companies like Levi's, Nike, Samsung, Timberland, and I had my own design studio at one point. And I did a lot of branding and merchandising and product development. Then at one point I said, you know what, I need to start building something my own. So and I had a affinity for coffee. So I said, I, you know, I would love to do a coffee shop that's something that me and my wife and family could build from the ground up. So I came to Bergen Lafayette, which was an up-and-coming neighborhood because we're residents of Jersey City. And I started the grind. I, you know, I branded it, merchandised it. My wife has a whole name background. You know, we just took a shot and it's been paying off. I mean, we really make a difference in the community right now. No question about that. And something I've been I've been doing this for a while at Wilco Foods and I have to tell you, your branding is as beautiful or more beautiful than any that I've ever seen in this industry. And I'm someone that's really sort of interested in that subject because we have our own food line here and just as a general matter. So your branding is so beautiful. My first question is, when you created all of the different elements of the brand for The Grind, what were you thinking about first? Were you thinking about the coffee? Were you thinking about your location? Were you thinking, you know, what was the thought process that led you to create the branding, whether it was the labeling for the store, the coffee cups, you've got phenomenal merchandise, which we're going to get into. Well, to be honest with you, I never designed for a specific area of I usually design for what my customer will want to see. So I think branding should be your first step in producing product. It should be a strong brand identity because that's what separates you from the coffee shop on the corner. You could put Grime literally next to Dunkin' Donuts and Starbucks and believe it's a bigger brand than what it is. And that was the objective I was trying to do. It's basically come out the gate in Jersey City, I mean, we set the bar. We set the bar high, especially in Bergen Lafayette, that if you're going to come in Bergen Lafayette, you have to really come correct because we're serving quality product and we're doing our brand identity and we take things serious. That's why we've been successful today. We've been here about five years now. No question. I mean, when I, when I look at your stuff, I mean, a lot of places 
you know, have merchandise. And even I, when I created a t-shirt for our brand Holland and York, and I'll be honest with you, like for myself, I'm not a branding guy and the people we're working with are not at your level, but just sort of like as a general thing, you've been so successful with the merchandise and everything that you're doing. Was that something you were thinking about as you created the grind or was it as the coffee shop sort of became a neighborhood institution was getting traction, you layered the merchandising on top of that and sort of built that into what was evolving? Or was it something that you had envisioned all opening up and executing on simultaneously? I had envisioned it. It was my background, so I had envisioned it, and I was building a Mm. brand for people. So it wasn't based on just coffee. So that's why our merchandise equates to a huge percentage of our sales is because people can relate And I had it in mind from day one that we would have a merchandising component. You know, I'm going from branding my own coffee beans to branding T-shirts. People are walking around with T-shirts and stuff like that. Put it on the shelf, it sells off the shelf. But I envisioned it from day one because I was envisioning building a brand, not just a coffee shop. I think that's such an important lesson for you out there listening, whether you're thinking about opening up a restaurant, a bar, coffee house, or you currently have one, you have to really ask yourself honestly, what are you doing to build, reinforce, and and communicate a brand? It's my thought, Michael. I'm curious about your thoughts. When I've done earlier podcasts and I look at those restaurants or bars or coffee houses that have survived for decades and that have scaled They have a few key components. One, they're very much involved and a part of the community within which they're located. And I think that's really helped a lot of people throughout the pandemic and all of that. And two, there's a level of execution, authenticity, uniqueness that separates them, that enables them to not only have their core customers that are their loyal customers, their regulars, if you will. But it's almost like a destination spot too, that when people are in a certain area or when they meet their friends that are from there, they go, you know, going into this coffee game, which you've been in and succeeding in, there's everybody thinks of, like you'd mentioned, Starbucks and Dunkin'. What are the key ways that you think the grind differentiates itself in addition to the branding, whether it's the coffee, whether it's, it's anything that you could think of? I think it's relating to our customers. Mm. Our customers really relate to us and we're really down to earth. We don't camouflage ourselves when you walk in, we're playing music that our core customers would want to hear. So we don't fake it. We, we just really stay authentic and we stay really authentic. I think that's been a real plus. We've just been a real authentic brand for mm. this neighborhood and the customers and the customers just, just synergy there. So they just really, really vibe with us and, you know, we have repeating. I can literally see the same customers for the last four or five years. They come every day. It's amazing. It's, yeah. You know. It's funny. You know, I lived in Chicago in the late 80s and early 90s. And this was before Starbucks really started to get moving. And coffee houses and coffee shop culture was big there. And, and it was in other parts. And such a huge part of why I went to my local coffee house, it was independent, was that community. Yeah. You know, that feeling that you're not just going somewhere and you're not unique and you're not a part of something. But what I think about when I look at your brand even is you have that connection to their community, but I can see your coffee houses being successful at scale. Yeah, I agree. Definitely. Definitely. 
let's get into the product a little bit. What about the coffee, the beans, or the drinks that you prepare, would you say is in any way unique? And it doesn't have to be anything like a crazy sort of mixture, just even the selection of the beans, how you prepare them. What do you do from sort of a coffee standpoint that you really feel is a differentiating factor from that angle? Well, first, when I sat down, I said, all right, well, what's our strategy as far as product, as far as coffee? I said, we're going to sell a quality product at a better price than Starbucks. You know, less a price than Starbucks, but not as a cheap product as Dunkin' Donuts. We're going to sit right in the middle. Mm-hmm. So I sell a really, really high quality bean, but that doesn't mean I have to price it where a latte is $8 or $7. I can still price it right in between Starbucks and Dunkin' Donuts. So my whole goal was just to have quality product. We come in in the morning, we weigh the beans, we package them correctly, we store them correctly so that they breathe. And I mean, it's a lot of preparation in the morning that goes into starting a pot of coffee. We could do a lot of preparation before. So my whole objective was to just serve quality product. Well, what's really cool is if you go to their social media, which is on Instagram, is at Grind Coffee JC. Mm-hmm. You know, to the audience out there, if you look at the branding, you look at everything about it, and then you throw in the fact that you can get a great cup of coffee or an espresso or whatever for less than Starbucks, that is the ultimate one-two punch. Because I think what you've done, which I think makes a lot of sense, is I think a lot of the independents, and you know, I'm curious to know your thoughts, but from what I see, just from people we deal with and just going around and, and, and getting coffee, because I love coffee myself, I almost feel like a lot of the independents feel that they have to come in at a higher price point and that that's their differentiation to Starbucks. They almost have to justify like, hey, you know, you're getting something uh, that's more expensive and that's why you should go to Starbucks. You've sort of turned that on its head, which is the presentation is superior to Starbucks, yet the product itself is more affordable, which, as I say, is the one-two punch. Yeah, that was the objective. That was definitely objective because we wanted to change the mindset of the coffee culture and just as the business culture. So what we did was like just make a high quality brand, including the space, and then a quality product. And you know, I think people respect that. Because I don't have I honestly do not it's a very, very small percentage of customers that complain. They realize that it was caretaken to provide them with the cup of coffee that they're receiving. So I get very, very little resistance. And that's that's a blessing. But that goes in with planning, too. I would say all young entrepreneurs or young business owners, they should... I planned this out, but it came from years of experience also, but I planned it out. How did I plan it out? Well, in the beginning, prior to even construction, I was planning the branding and what cups we would use, what sleeves we would use, where we would get them from, the product we would be carrying, the sugar we would, you know, what we stood for, our mission statement. I had all that done prior to opening. So I planned. And the financial aspect of business is unforgiving. You have to really, really be on it. Before we even came on the air, I was telling you Mondays are tough. Mondays are tough because a lot of businesses sit around on the weekend and, and they and they lose control. You have to stay in control on Monday. Make sure that you pay the necessary bills, that all the money that's coming in is not your money. It's the business money, and you need it to run the business. So, But I came in with a lot of experience because I watched a lot of high-level businessmen. 
work their business. And I worked for a lot of big companies, and I always wonder how did they become big? They became big by strategy. Mm-hmm. Strategy. You know, so what's the strategy for grind? You know, I could open up one of these in 15 different locations and follow the same format and be successful. I have a lot of employees that's been with me for four or five years. That also, like you, I've seen your guys in your business. They're there for years. That says a lot about the leadership. No question about it. I think I was discussing this with someone the other day, which is, you know, I have a certain philosophy here that during what we're going through with the pandemic and everything, I think it's more important for humans to be interacting with each other than ever before and be empathetic. And one of the things I'm constantly communicating to everybody that works at Woolco is I want us to be, when we engage with anybody, that we're a sort of a source of certainty, a source of empathy, that we're here to give solutions, that we care about people as individuals. And that's like the company culture. So I really appreciate you identifying that because I'm very grateful that the people that are part of this organization have been here a long time and all share those values. Because it's it's during the tough times when you really understand what your values are and and who embodies them and who doesn't. And it's your values that really get you through more than anything. During the pandemic, I watched businesses around here. And Wolco turned on a dime. I mean, you had to downscale like everyone else. I had to downsize. You had to downsize. I had to have certain um, employees come in certain days, but no employee quit. And I was I was able to turn on a dime and start offering delivery services just like you did. I was like, not just because we're on the phone, but the only company that I noticed was able to turn on a dime and start reinventing themselves quick was Wolco. That's true. It made me go to your site when I seen the little trucks moving around more than the big trucks. I was like, wow, these dudes yeah. really turned on a dime and really got it, that you have to really reinvent yourself and keep your pulse to the ground. A lot of people went under. It hasn't even begun to me, the economic backlash of this. It hasn't, to me, it hasn't even begun. But if you keep true to your brand and true to your core and true to your customer, I think you'll weather this storm. And this is a hell of a storm. It's a hell of a storm. And something you say is true because I remember, you know, just to sort of put it in perspective. And I remember just from a business standpoint, you know, we were located in lower Manhattan when 9-11 occurred. We were a mile from the uh, Twin Towers. I remember 2008. I remember Hurricane Sandy. And just from a business standpoint, Michael, I mean, those were horrific tragedies. This is that on steroids. And I remember the first week that they did the shutdown, our sales dropped 82% in a week, something I'd never seen. And sort of just feeding off of something you said, and I appreciate what you had to say, because, you know, we pivoted and by the grace of God, things have come back strong, but we did have to really pivot, adjust, adapt, be nimble. You know, you have to do what you have to do to, to, to get through that. And, and like I say, thank God, it's turned around. But I would say another thing, which you and I have discussed as well, and I think it's a mistake that a lot of entrepreneurs, young entrepreneurs make, is you want to make sure that your business is financially strong. So for example, with us, I think it was always a matter that we believed in investing in ourselves. And we were always very, very cautious. Like we will use leverage if an opportunity presents itself, but we're not like out there crazy borrowing and spending on anything we feel like because when something happens, that's a problem. You know what I mean? Right, 
right. When the, the lockdown happened, I was bringing parents from my kids' school to WOCO because they didn't believe that the lockdown would happen, that the supermarkets would run out. I had the connections to be able to bring them to get sacks of rice, to get water, and I brought them to WOCO because I could walk in and say, Sean, I need this amount of cap. I need this, I need this, and I need this. And I was able to help about 10 families get groceries because they didn't believe that the lockdown was going to happen. And it happened. You go to the shop, right? And there was no, there was nothing on the shelves. There was nothing in Target. There was nothing. So then I would come, I would, you know, some days, my wife was like, why don't you just shut down for a little while? I said, if I shut down, people would start walking another direction. And then when I opened, I lost those customers. So I have to consistently keep opening up as long as I can. And there'll be days that I'll go to Woke and I was like, damn, this is scary, bro. It'll be empty. And I'll be empty. My sales would drop at least 70% down. And I would say, damn, this is scary. This is like no other. This is I've never seen this before. Never. Mm-hmm. Never seen it before. No, I agree with you. But, you know, to sort of bring it full circle, I mean, it's true. It was like, It was unlike anything I've ever seen. But as with anything else, you know, thank God we were in a position financially from from not being over levered. And you just got to keep fighting. And that's the other thing about business and being an entrepreneur is you really have to, you know, when when it's all said and done, like we were just talking about, Michael, it comes down to your team. It comes down to your values. And a lot of times it even comes down to your psychology. You know, like what I've been telling my guys, like I just mentioned to you. There's a lot of information coming at people. I don't even know if it's information. There's a lot of stimuli coming at people that if they just sit and listen to it all day, it can absolutely make them frightened and depressed and immobile. Like the more you focus on things in life that you can't control, the more anxious and unhappy you're going to be. What I try to discipline myself and my team around here to do is, hey, what opportunities exist now that you can take action on? And for me, one of the most important opportunities I keep pushing people on is, look, there's a lot of people right now that we've known in this industry. They've landed new jobs. They may be out of a job. There's a lot of customers you've had that are facing challenges. Be a problem solver. Be a value creator for people. Reach out to people. Talk to them. And what I I would say, I'm curious to know your thoughts, is like, I think that one of the things that we've definitely seen evidence from during this whole thing is that human beings are social and people desperately want to get together together. And people want to do those things that they were doing and and being together. So, like, I'm thinking on the other side, the level of engagement in things like coffee houses, like restaurants, like concerts, I I think people are so desirous to get back to that that I think businesses need to start positioning to say, okay, phase one, phase two, phase three. Now, how do I start positioning to, yeah, we got to make it through what we're going through now. But on the other side, too, we got to be prepared for that. Right. When the lockdown was over, it went from Friday, no one on the street, to Monday, everyone on the street. They needed to socialize so badly that they'll risk it. And, you know, I still maintain the rules so that my staff and, you know, I would try to make sure that the customers abide by that, hey, this is still a pandemic and it was real. We can't drop the ball right now. So we should keep sanitizing keep wearing masks, keep our distance because it can go into two, three years if we don't. 
you know, we were successful, but I've definitely seen that the need for socialization, that people need to socialize for sure. I've seen it. Yeah, I, I, I agree there 100%. Now is the time to sort of double down and, and do all of the things that we need to do to run our businesses and engage. But just sort of on a macro thing, that's why I keep saying to to everybody, you know, it doesn't have to be about making a sale. It can just be checking in on somebody. You know, I mean, yeah. this is this is a relationship business. Like, I'll tell you something. So many people that I've known in this industry and have been related to this industry sort of stepped up, even with us. You know, we try to step up for people and be there as a friend or be there and respect the relationship. And so many people have done that for us as well that it's like, wow, you realize what's at the core of this whole thing. And it's been very, very inspiring. Something about your story, which is super inspiring as well, is you've now taken the brand, The Grind Coffee Shop, and you've opened up the Grind General Store. Right. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Well, again, during the pandemic, I had already been, it was this, the area that my coffee shop in was like a food desert. It was the desert for the new residents of the neighborhood. You know, the, the area is gentrifying and the new residents didn't have anywhere to shop. So I said, even during the pandemic, I was like, I'm not going to let this stop me from doing what I have to do. So I kept moving and I opened up July right after it. I was like, I'm not going to let, I still pay the rent. I'm going to keep paying the bills. I'm going to keep having the staff. I still have my same staff. And I said, I'm just going to keep searching forward and I'm not going to give up. This is what I'm going to do. So I transitioned into a general store. Also, I did that so that I compete with myself. I kind of have both ends of the avenue. I have the top, which is Pacific Street, and then I have by the light rail, which is Sudan, because you know, sometimes you know this. Sometimes you lay down all the hard work, and then someone else comes along and reap the rewards after you done went through four or five years of no sales, some sales. Now it's starting to pick up. So I say, you know what? Let me just go ahead and fill that void. Let me fill that void also. So and it, you know, it worked. It worked. But it honestly takes a lot of hard work. You have to be persistent. You have to be. Persistence is for sure. But also, that's a real entrepreneur. And, and I have such respect and I'm so inspired when I hear people. And I'm, I'm hearing it now a little bit more that people are viewing what goes on now and they're saying, you know what, I want to take advantage of the opportunities, again, like you and I have been talking about. Right. I mean, you're opening up in July. And I think for you, it's such a brilliant decision because the grind as a brand we talked about the coffee shop, and I can see these coffee shops opening up anywhere and being successful. But the grind is going to be, if it isn't already, a known brand in Jersey City. And for people who don't know Jersey City, Jersey City has been going through major – there's just a ton of ac economic activity going on here. Right. So I think leveraging the grind and now, okay, we've got the Grind Coffee House, we've got Grind General Store. Right. That grind can be deployed in a lot of different contexts. And I think to go after it in the middle of it in July is just really awesome. And I hope everyone's listening to that. I have big developers that'll come and say, hey, we want you to open up over on 440. We want you to open up one in Bayonne. We want you to open up here. And I'm like, I appreciate all those opportunities, but oversaturation and overgrowth can take away from this. It could really put us out of business. So I say, I appreciate the opportunity. But it has to be something that we develop into. We can't, we have to grow into that. We can't just jump into that because then it become overwhelming and you just discount the whole quality of the brand. 
despite mm-hmm. someone coming to walk or hey, we want you to do 500 hotels. All right, we have to make sure that the logistics is right, the product is right, the finance is right. There's a lot of things that has to be right before I could say, you know what, I'm going to go to 440, I'm going to go to Bayonne, I'm going to go to Patterson. They, they wanted me to come to Patterson. It's like, man, logistically, how am I not going to overwhelm the, the managers that I have now and overwhelm myself with opening up four locations in Patterson, opening up on Bayonne? I, you know, so I have to be, you have to be smart about it. You have to be, you know, all opportunities are not good opportunities. You're absolutely right. I've seen many, many instances. In fact, it's common. It wouldn't it would not happen with you, but people have to be as careful navigating growth as they do navigating when things are a little challenged. Because if you don't financially navigate the growth and the scale of your business, you can get yourself into problems very quickly that you can't get out of. Look, I drove through Manhattan this summer. Look at the growth in Manhattan, twenty five thousand dollar a month rent, fifteen thousand dollar a month rent. One thing happened and boom. I know. The landlord's just going to suffer. And I don't see someone someplace like a Manhattan bouncing back that easily. It's going to be very, it's going gonna, it's gonna to have to be difficult because you're talking about $25,000 rent, $35,000 rent, and you have to sell so much. The, the employees are not there anymore to buy lunch. They're not there anymore to get coffee. So, so it's, it's like you said, a one-two punch. Knock the hand out. Knock them out. I think so. I think that there's parts of New York City. I I think that there were challenges. Well, let's put it like this. Before the pandemic, I had so many customers that were doing great business. They had great business. They were there for 10 years. They were 20 years, whatever. And then their lease was up and the landlord said, okay, we need a uh, 300% increase. Right. And no matter how successful they were. So I I agree with you 100%. Manhattan, probably more so than anywhere else in this area that we're located, is going to have to go through a reset. And for those entrepreneurs and restaurateurs and and people that want to open up something in the hospitality industry, this can be your opportunity. But you have to really think differently. Because I I, I even think neighborhoods, like, for example, let's talk about Midtown for a minute. Like you were saying, Midtown was a place where you had businesses that were absolutely thriving off of the lunch trade from all of those offices that were there. Well, who knows when that's going to come back? So if you want to go into Midtown... You need to almost have the philosophy that the guys had when they opened Odeon and Tribeca before yeah. it became Tribeca yeah. or Florent yeah. when he did meatpacking and said, I'm going to open up in this sort of area and people are going to come to me. But yeah. You got to think differently now. Whereas I uh-huh. think in Jersey City, and, and I would be curious to know your thoughts, things were never that crazy leading up to this with rent because Jersey City has been just slowly moving along. It took, I lived on, I lived in Jersey 20 years and Grove Street just turned into Grove Street maybe five, six, seven years ago. It was never like that before. It took a long time for downtown. It's still the close proximity to the city and it still never moved quickly. It was a slow, I think Bergen Lafayette moved faster than downtown. Mm. I think you're right. I remember when we moved, we were in the meatpacking district and we moved to Jersey City in uh, mm-hmm. 2004. So for people that don't, that don't know, we're like a mile outside the Holland Tunnel. You come in and for people that don't know, there's this entire almost city that was built up on the left side of Grand Street, Michael, with all those like buildings and rentals and townhouses. None oh of that God. was there in 04. No, no none of that. Peter, that's Peter Marco. He built that whole 
over there, right there, that whole thing. Now it looks like Vegas almost. He yeah. built that up, you know, but he's been in Jersey City 40 years. He's a developer out here. And he, uh, I mean, he's seen a vision. It's, Jersey City is definitely a vision. It's just a, it's something that you have to see. It really is. I was just reading in the paper, and this is in the Bergen-Lafayette area, that I saw that they approved by the Liberty Science Center. They're going yeah. to be building these additional yeah. research facilities, yeah. which is so cool. Because I mean, yeah. that's a, for anyone that hasn't been to the Liberty Science Center, I, it's by far, in my opinion, the best museum, especially for kids. New yeah. York, Brooklyn does not compare to the uh, Liberty Science Center. And yeah. now they're going to build this whole thing over there. It's a high, I think it's going to be a high-tech community and high school, something basic. Yeah. I, I was reading something like that. It's crazy. You know, one of the things that I, I think about a lot in Jersey City, because like I said, we were located on Gansevoort Street, and I remember when the meatpacking area sort of turned. What I like about Jersey City, what I really like about it, because it reminds me, is it still is a place that's not overrun with a bank on every corner or a chain place. Like, this is a place where you really feel, and you, you go different places, you'll see different types of businesses, but the independent businesses in Jersey City are still the dominant players. It's old Brooklyn. It's like old Brooklyn. Yeah. That's what Jersey City feels like to me. So now that you've done the general store and you've got the coffee house, and, and I totally get what you're saying, I agree with you. Have you, have you thought of any other ways that you would want to deploy the Grind brand or just what do you see sort of the future of the brand looking out a few years, you know, scaling it in the way that, you know, makes sense, of course, from a prudent standpoint? I would uh, stabilize what I have and grow a wholesale division. That's what I would love to build off of is a wholesale division, wholesaling a branded coffee, mm-hmm. wholesaling branded merch, wholesaling, making coffee cups really cool, making hydro flasks really cool, doing cool collaborations, stuff like that. That's what I would want to, because there is no business like wholesale business. A lot of people think retail is hard. If you can get your wholesale business up, you could, you know, and you're in a thousand locations and when you just have one location, but when you're wholesaling out to a thousand different locations, you have a thousand locations that you have to service, which is it's not horrible. So that would be the future for grind. Your hydro flasks are beautiful. I mean, all the stuff that you do, but I was just getting ready for this interview and I was looking on your Instagram page right. and I was looking at the merch. I mean, mm-hmm. uh, I think all of your stuff really lends itself to be wholesaled as well. Yeah, that, that's the plan. That's the plan is to strategic, stabilize these two. These are like the base and then grow the wholesale division because even when the pandemic hit, I had a roaster out of Brooklyn that was doing our beans and he was doing a high quality beans. And I just came up with the label Jersey city versus everyone. And I, you know, I just didn't look back. I would sell two, three. He was amazed that in the pandemic, I was selling two, three, 400 pounds of beans. I'll sell two, 300 pounds on a weekend. It was just Jersey city versus everybody. And I was selling it to firehouses, individuals. Uber was picking it up. It was like, you know, I just had to pivot. Shane was like, my wife's name is Shane. She was like, what are you doing? I was like, you know, we can't lay down to this. What are we going to do? What are we going to do? What are we going to do? We've been out here. We've been doing this for four or five years. And this is unfortunate. But what are we going to do? We got to keep going. And it was like, you know, my kids, I think, even looked at me differently. Because they see me leaving out. I mean, you know, some days there will be no one. 
didn't no one on the street. No one. I was like, damn, this this seems like something out of a movie. But there would be no one on the street. I know you know because I come to Wolco some days and there'd be no one in Wolco. I was like, what happened mm-hmm. to all the shops? What happened to yep. all the, the, the restaurants that was picking up? They would be like, everyone's gone. And it just started picking back up during the spring and summer for you guys. Because I, I come over there a few times a week and I can gauge what's going on by the amount of circulation on wholesale. And you guys picking back up, but it's like people came back out, but then, you know, like people shut down quick. It shut down quick. And that, to me, was more scary than anything, how people can shut down that quick. I think people wanted to shut down that quick. You know, you're right. I mean, you hit it on the head. Like like I said, I mean, the week before the pandemic, we made more in gross profit than we did the same week the last year. Right. The next week, literally down 82%. And you're right. At that moment in time, we pivoted. We did the home delivery. I saw. That worked out very well for us because, you know, it was one of those rare circumstances where we had logistical superiority to Amazon because Amazon was making you wait four, right. five, six days for your delivery. Right. We could get it to you the next day. Right. Then what happened is in the spring and really the turning point when things really turned in a big way was probably the second week in June, first, second week in June. Right. And then the restaurants came back and we have a lot of business in the Rockaways and the Jersey Shore and that whole thing was coming back. But you're right. This was a test and it has been and continues to be a test of character. Like it's easy. It's easy to walk around and do stuff when everything's good. But when you got to dig deep and step up and go to work when you know that it's like crazy or there's no one on the streets or open your shop and you might get one or two people in there, but just for the sake of, I'm not shutting down. That's when you sort of know kind of what you're made of a little bit, you know? Yep. And I think that the other thing which you were talking about, because your brand slogan, Jersey City versus everybody is phenomenal, is to really have created something where the brand can immediately translate into such an impact like that. So, I mean, I don't want to take up any more of your time except with one quick question. And for people that are listening, especially if you're looking to start a business, this is an episode you're going to want to listen to again and take notes because what Michael's been saying is fundamental truths that cannot be avoided. But my last question, Michael, is what one or two things would you say are the most important things at the beginning for, for someone that's looking to start a business in the hospitality or anything that they need to focus on from the jump? What would you say is the one or two things that they got to focus on, get clear on first before everything else? Get clear on, uh, I would say, your customer and your finance. Get very clear on your customer, who you're catering to, and what does that person want? I know exactly what the customer, my customer in this area wants know exactly what they want. I know exactly how much they want to spend. So I know the customer. Get to know your customer and keep your eye on your finances. Keep your eye on your spending. That's what I would suggest to a young entrepreneur that wanted to open up their own business. Keep your eye on your spending and keep your eye on your customer. Very, very powerful and true. Michael, this was a real joy, and I really am glad you took the time to speak with me today. I appreciate you, and I love learning from you. And again, this is Michael Clark, owner and founder of the Grind Coffee Shop and Grind General Store. 
You can find them at www.grindcoffeejc.com. Absolutely check them out on Instagram at grindcoffeejc. You're going to see some of the most beautiful branding in your life. Michael, this was great. And uh, I just hope you have a great day. And thank you again. Oh, one more thing. Yes, sir. Give back. You have to give back. You have to. You have to, just like what we did with the turkey drive. Yeah. The community, you have no, you have, I mean, I can come out here three o'clock in the morning and have no problems. Everyone respects. Everyone knows. They know exactly who I am because I give back. I don't just take out three o'clock. I leave. I take out. of No, I'll give back. That's why I got you involved on the turkey drive. A lot of people didn't have food to eat. They got the turkeys and that we provided. Yes. That was like, you have to, you have to, as much as you give, just as much as you're going to get back. Trust me on that one. I couldn't agree with you more, Michael. And I mean, all all I can say is I completely agree with you. I I believe that if you have a business, I believe as a human being, business or not, you have a responsibility to the people around you and you have a responsibility, if you can, to make things better. And certainly if you have a business, if thank God you're, you're, you know, everybody's facing challenges, but if you're doing okay, you have to think about other people. I could not agree with you more. And that's why I'm really, I'm really glad you got us involved with that turkey drive. And as with everything else, you did a magnificent job. And that's also very important, I think, for people to recognize from the beginning of starting a business. In my humble opinion, don't just make it all about what it can be for you and how much you can get out of it. Think of it in a little bit of a bigger sense of what you can contribute as you're building your business. What type of impact are you going to have, you know? Exactly. I mean, if they said, do you want the mayor? I was like, no, I don't want, no, I'm not going to make a big deal about people's hardships. Right. And Phillips sent me an email. He's like, I just appreciate what you do for the for the neighborhood. I was like, I'm not going to make a big deal about people's hardships. That's not, that's not why I'm doing it. I don't need a pat on the back from the mayor or whatever. No, no, no. I mean, that's not why I'm doing it. I'm doing it because you had a hundred bad women who didn't have food for Thanksgiving. You had a hundred home, not homeless, but people that was affected by the pandemic that didn't have Thanksgiving. We was able to help them out. That's it. That's enough for me. I don't need anything else. That's enough. I'm with you. I'm with you a hundred percent. I'm with you a hundred percent. Michael, thank you for everything. And uh, this was really great. And I appreciate you taking the time to speak with me. Thanks, man. No problem. Anything I could do, just call me. You know Same that. here. Same here. Have an awesome day, Michael. You too, man. Goodbye. Bye. Well, that was a great interview with a very special person, Michael Clark of the Grind Coffee Shop in Jersey City and the Grind General Store. Learned so much in that interview and was very much inspired. As always, I love to hear from everyone, so if you'd like to, please email me at stephen at woolcofoods.com, or you can DM me at woolcofoods. Uh, if you enjoyed the podcast, please subscribe, please leave a comment. I, I really appreciate that if you would. If you know someone else who would enjoy this content, please share it with them. That would really mean a lot to me. But most importantly, everyone, have just an awesome, awesome day. For listening to the profitable table fed by Woolco Foods. Please be sure to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. And to learn more about Woolco Foods or Stephen Toberoff, please visit us at woolcofoods.net.